No one can receive anything unless God gives it from heaven. John the Baptizer. Hey, it's Andy, and this is the 37th episode of BNP, Biblical Narratives Podcast. historical context that puts you right in the action. Right off the bat, I want to say that many of you are not going to like this episode. Nope. Some of your assumptions will be challenged, and you're certainly not going to like how I wrap things up. There are no tidy sitcom endings here. Just a big hot mess of goo. Believe it or not, we are still in Acts. Well, kind of anyway. As Paul and Barnabas carry on with their missionary efforts, we would do well to get into the heads of the Jews to whom they are ministering. Yes, there are many Gentiles as well, but much of the initial ministry taking place here is directed at those attending synagogue. The message of the kingdom of God is a prominent message given by Paul and Barnabas. Consequently, there is a level of common knowledge, assumptions, and expectations among their audiences. One of the big expectations revolves around the Davidic covenant, where God promised David that he would have a descendant on his throne forever. Jewish leaders for nearly 1,000 years have anticipated a coming conquering king. So, when John the Baptizer and Jesus of Nazareth come on the scene, the Jewish leaders are confronted with some unexpected hang-ups. These guys, they don't completely fit our expectations of God's chosen ones. That is the common thought among Jewish leadership. So, they rejected them both. Picking up in our story today, we will see the Jewish leadership trying to do their due diligence with John the Baptizer and Jesus. But in doing so, they find themselves wrestling against a movement of God. And with that, let's get started. Staring down at his shoes, the priest sees dirt caked on his feet in lairs. He shakes his head and mutters to himself, I hate the desert. How did I get picked for this assignment anyway? He wonders with each step along the riverbank. Following a trail around a bend in the river, the priest and his entourage of Pharisees, temple assistants, and subordinate priests begin to hear shouts and applause coming from a distance away. I think we're there, one of the temple assistants says while pointing off to an inlet in the river. Holding his position, he shows the priests whose eyes begin to widen with disbelief. Wow, that is a lot of people. The priest marvels as he begins counting. There must be hundreds gathered here. Where have they all come from? Approaching the larger group of people gathered by the riverbank, a man turns around to see who has shown up. Oh, hey! he says with surprise in his voice. Wow, there are quite a number of you coming. What's happening here? A Pharisee asks while feigning ignorance. The man turns back in the direction of the group and begins to clap along with the rest of the group. Praise be to our Lord, he then turns his head towards the Pharisee and notices him to be a man of importance. Oh, well, forgive me, sir, he says while facing the Pharisee directly. What's happening here is amazing. God is calling people to repentance, calling them in check for their faithlessness and their idolatrous lifestyles. Well, that sounds impressive, the priest interjects. Where are you coming from? Do you live around here? Me? The man laughs. I don't think anybody's from around here. I don't know, maybe Jericho or the cave-dwelling Essenes, but they're still a ways away from where we're at. 
I see, the priest says. Then you're from Jericho? Oh no, the man replies. I'm from the Galilee. Wow, that's some distance for you to travel, the priest responds. That's got to be what, 50 miles from here? Something like that, the man says, wondering where this conversation is heading. The priest looks back in the direction of the group. So you walk some 50 miles away from home to come to the desert to watch a baptism here in the river? Puzzled by the question, the man responds, Well, yeah, but this isn't any ordinary baptism. This man is calling us to repentance because the Lord is up to something. I'm intrigued, the Pharisee follows, as he and the priest exchange a knowing glance. Tell me. Interrupted by the man's shushing gesture, the Pharisee begins to respond to the man's rudeness when he is stopped in his tracks by a booming, coarse voice. Peering through the crowd, the Pharisee and the priest spot a curious-looking figure weathered by long days under the sweltering sun. He's not that old. What, thirty? Thirty-five, maybe? The priest thinks to himself. Stepping around others in the crowd, he is finally able to see the man in front of him. So this is the man we've heard so much about. This is John the Baptizer. Standing next to the river's shoreline, with water rising up to his ankles, the baptizer's posture exudes a certain confidence. Surprised by what he sees, the priest thinks to himself, What is that? A garment made out of what? Camel hair? Assessing the man in front of him, the priest finally looks into the baptizer's eyes and sees them peering right back at him. You are like grass, the baptizer projects. Your beauty fades as quickly as the flowers in a field. The grass, it withers, and the flowers fade beneath the breath of the Lord. And so it is with people. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, messenger of good news, shout from the mountaintop. Shout it louder, O Jerusalem. Shout, and do not be afraid. Tell the towns of Judah, your God is coming. Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. He will feed the flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms. Holding them close to his heart, he will gently lead the mother's sheep with their young. Yes, the crowd erupts. He will end the tyranny, one shouts. He will stop our oppression, yells out another. Come, Lord, come. Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him, the baptizer yells out. The valleys will be filled and the mountains and hills will be leveled. The curves will be straightened and the rough places, they'll be made smooth. And then all people will see the salvation sent from God. Confused by this statement, some yell out, Prepare the way for our Lord's coming? What should we do? How can we possibly prepare? You den of venomous snakes, you hate one another, that much is obvious. Oh, how you hurt others to benefit yourselves. Your hatred of others shows how you hate God as well. Who warned you to flee God's coming wrath, the baptizer accuses. You have been warned time and time again. Now, the Lord who has warned you is bringing down the axe. The attentive crowd presses in with a new level of urgency. What should we do? Some call out. You already know, the man responds. You've been taught this since your childhood. Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, we're descendants from Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots from the trees. 
Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. We've sinned, some from the crowd lament. What can we do to make this right? Everything changes here and now, the baptizer responds. Commit yourself to the Lord by getting baptized right here, right now. You can start new from here by treating others with respect and in this begin pleasing the Lord. Without hesitation, two men step into the river, wading out to where it is deep enough. Placing his hands under their armpits, the baptizer lowers them into the water and continues to address the crowd. If you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. Others step into the waters and move closer to the baptizer, who is now waist deep. What about us? Others ask the baptizer. Looking up and down at their clothing, the baptizer sees that they are well off. What brings you here? Not knowing how to begin to share, one of the men looks down to see the water hit his knees. Finally, he looks over at his friend and confesses, I don't know where to begin. Publicans? The baptizer bluntly asks. Seeing the baptizer's eyes gaze into his own, the man nods. The baptizer nods with understanding and says, You enslave people, paying them pennies for their labor, right? You lowball your construction bids with Rome, knowing that they will contract with you, so you count on slave labor to carry out your contractual obligations. Does that sound about right? Well, that's how the system works, the other man begins to speak before he sees the baptizer's hands go up. Yes, and above the slave labor, you excessively tax these poor people to compensate for the loss of margin that comes from your low bids. You're padding your own pockets from the slaves you've created, right? The baptizer assesses. And what's worse is that you send in your henchmen to do your tax-collecting dirty work. Using intimidation, they're not above roughing up anyone who falls short. Feeling called out, both men lower their heads and agree. The weight of your guilt must be heavy, the baptizer follows while touching the hem of one of the men's sleeves. I can only imagine how many lives you've destroyed in order to wear these fine clothes. How many fathers have been disfigured by your henchmen, he pauses. No surprise that most people hate you. You figure since they hate you, that's all the more reason to make them pay, right? He pauses again. You know, you can be set free from all of this. Looking up at the baptizer with renewed hope, one of the men looks at the other who feels the tension. Do I forfeit my business to free my conscience? He thinks to himself. Your loss is the first step towards the Lord's favor, the baptizer says. Both agree and say, We're ready. We can't in good conscience continue. Even our own parents won't look at us in the eyes. Lowering both into the water, the baptizer yells out, These men have been set free today. Raising them back up, he instructs them, Let's start with this. Collect no more than what the government requires. Splash! What the? The priest blurts out. This is getting out of control. What do you think you're doing? He yells at the men who seemingly ignore him. He then sternly looks up at his subordinate priest to warn them of their defiance. Take one step, he thinks. Try me. Wide-eyed, the subordinate priests do not move. In full armor, the soldiers approach the baptizer and ask, What do we need to do? The baptizer smiles and says, You know your issues. You don't make great money. So it's the commoners who pay for your blackmail fees, right? Knowing he hasn't pegged, the baptizer continues, Don't use violence or gossip or false accusations to make a little extra side money. Be happy with your pay. 
Torn with mixed emotions, the Pharisee calls out to the baptizer as he lifts the soldiers out from the river. Excuse me, John, is it? The crowd turns to face the priest, bringing attention to himself. Yes, the baptizer responds. Who are you? The Pharisee asks. Are you interrupting? The baptizer responds. No, I am not the Messiah. I am not the coming king. Well, then, the Pharisee replies. Are you Elijah? No, says the baptizer. Becoming exasperated, the Pharisee responds. Are you the prophet we're expecting? No, the baptizer says again. Looking back at the priests, the other Pharisees, and their subordinates, he shakes his head in disbelief. Well, then, who are you? He announces with a new level of bravado. We need to answer those who sent us from Jerusalem. What do you have to say for yourself? What authority do you have to do anything here? If you are not the Messiah or Elijah, then what gives you the authority to baptize? Those in the crowd turn their heads to see the baptizer's response with nearly everyone thinking... The authority card has just been played. Seeing the tension build, the baptizer slowly takes in the faces of those watching. That whole group of guys have traveled all the way here from Galilee, some 60 miles away, he thinks to himself. Well, we're waiting, the Pharisee says mockingly. The baptizer smiles at this as he sees his own disciples leaning in to see how he may respond. For effect, He slowly turns around in the river to take in his surroundings and says, I am simply a voice shouting out here in the desert. Clear a path for the Lord. Be assured, he is coming. Priests and Pharisees look at one another with a new level of curiosity. Isaiah's prophetic words about God's coming to free us from our sins and our oppression. Yes, the Pharisee responds. That is well and good, but it doesn't answer my question. What right do you have to baptize? What do you see here? The baptizer yells out to the crowd. I baptize with water, but right here in the crowd is someone you do not recognize. Though his ministry follows mine, I am not even worthy to be a slave and untie his straps of his sandals. In desperation, the crowd wildly looks around to find the one of whom the baptizer speaks. Under the columned royal stoa, merchants set up their tables for the day's business. A rapidly growing group forms some 100 feet away as the merchants warily watch. He's back, one says to another. Let's hope we don't have a repeat of yesterday. Oh, I'll kill him if we do, the other responds as he places another necklace on the table. Then muttering to himself, he says with a mocking tone, Oh, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. Holding a necklace, he then says, Do that again, and I will wrap this around your neck, buddy. Assessing the damage done along the royal stoa, a group of Sanhedrin members made up of chief priests, scribes, and elders talk with each of the merchants who point towards the growing group that is slowly moving away from them. Two elders approach the necklace merchant and say, Hello. The necklace merchant looks up and nods. We're trying to get a better sense of what happened here yesterday, one of the elders says. Were you affected by yesterday's attack? Suddenly angered, the necklace merchant grabs two necklaces to show the elders and says, I've spent the better part of last night repairing all of these. Clutching the merchandise, he points to the group and continues, That man has gone too far. Then muttering, he continues to mock, Oh, look at me, I'm a coming king who sits on a donkey. I'll sit you on a donkey, I'll... 
Seeing the necklace merchant loses cool, the elders politely thank him and move on to the merchant next door and ask, How about you? Were you negatively affected by yesterday's outburst? Maintaining his sanity, the other merchant responds while gesturing to the angry necklace merchant who seems to be seething. Yeah, I was hit too. He came with quite a determined look on his face. At first, he dealt a blow to the money changers, calling them a bunch of thieves who prey upon the unsuspecting pilgrims by charging transaction fees. He overturned their tables and disrupted their businesses. But that was just the beginning. He then went over to those selling sacrificial animals, freed their doves, and called them a bunch of predators, too. It didn't stop there, though. He finally came our way and dumped our merchandise as well. It got to a point where he wouldn't let anyone buy, carry, or sell any merchandise at all. He then pauses and says, It was a tough business day, that's for sure. Thank you for your time, the elders say. We'll look into this further. Overhearing the conversation, the necklace merchant yells out, You'd better, otherwise I'll hunt him down and I will gut him like a fish. Gesturing with both hands to cool down, the elders nod and start walking. Something needs to be done with this lunatic, one of them confides to the other. The other elder chimes in while pointing over at the group. Exactly what are we to do? He has hundreds of people gathered around him, hanging on to every word he says. You saw what happened when he made his grand entrance into Jerusalem. The whole city flocked to see him. They even worshipped him as the Messiah. What's worse is he seemed to be okay with receiving their worship. Rejoining the other groups of Sanhedrin elders who had previously split up to conduct their fact-finding mission, those in the group compare their findings. Finally hearing the reports, a chief priest motions for all to settle down. While I sense that we're not in full agreement as to what to do with Jesus of Nazareth, we need to do something before everything we know and love completely melts into chaos. Hear, hear, many yell out. Calm yourselves, the priest yells out. Let me continue, please. The group settles down and listens in. We've already determined that this man is not the Messiah, the chief priest speaks. But the people seem to think differently. He pauses to look at the large group of nearly a thousand people gathered around the one man. Shaking his head, he continues, Yes, he's becoming unwieldy, and if we let things continue, then we'll be staring revolt right in the face. Let the chief elders confide for a moment, please. Confiding with a few chief elders a few steps away, the chief priest comes back and says to the larger group, We believe we need to take a few important and careful steps to discredit the man in front of his followers. The more we separate him from them, the better. Is that agreed? The group agrees and formulates a plan of action. No sooner than when the group of elders disperse, a few members walk over to the large group and make their way towards their teacher. Noticing them to be men of authority, the crowd opens up a pathway for the men to weave through. As they make their way to the front, the teacher notices their approach and pauses. Finding courage in their numbers, one of the Sanhedrin elders asserts himself and peers into the eyes of the teacher. He then places his face a short distance away from the teachers, ever scrutinizing the man sitting in front of him. Watching the man evaluate him so closely makes for an awkward moment for those in the crowd. Dodging the man's intrusion into his personal space, Jesus holds his hands out in front of him and says, Gentlemen, to what do we owe the honor of your presence? The man takes a step back, turns around, and takes in the thousands of curiously watchful eyes. 
Other elders step closer and form a half circle around the teacher, separating him from the crowd. One of the elders begins to comment, Forgive us, Rabbi, but we would like to ask a few questions about yesterday's, um, incident, another elder calls out. The incident where you violently interfered with the innocent business owners under the royal stoa. A chief priest speaks up. Yes, calling them thieves in the temple, your house of prayer for all nations, I believe is what you said. Do I have that right? He pauses, then says, The wrong audience might construe that as an act of rebellion against our system of worship, which was handed to us by God himself. I'm sure that isn't what you intended with your little outburst, was it? Hmm? A rebellion against God? Jesus sits silently before his accusers. The first elder approaches Jesus once again and says, Rabbi, that is what they call you, right? Rabbi, who is your teacher? Who is your master? Which one of us took you under our wings to ensure your proper training? Which one of us placed you as a high authority here in Jerusalem? Which one of us called you to be our king? By what authority are you doing, he gestures towards the crowd, these things, teaching the people we lead and teach, leading them God knows where. Open rebellion? Is that what you're after? You perform a few cheap conjurer's tricks and you think you can undo what we've had in place for hundreds of years? Finding his momentum, the elder continues, We've been formally trained, and we know exactly what we're here to do. We have been called by God to lead these people who you have managed to usurp out from under our leadership. We know our place, and we know our rights and where our authority comes from. But you, you have not been pedigreed, trained, or raised within our processes. In anger, he flails his arms around and continues, Who do you think you are, getting children and countless naive ones to think you're the Messiah? What right do you think that you have to be here teaching this crowd? Who gave you the authority to do what you're doing? Allowing him to exhaust in anger, Jesus continues to sit, unfettered by the accusations. Well, the elder demands, answer me. Who has given you this authority? Slightly nodding his head, the teacher slowly stands up and takes in the confused looks from those listening in. Yes, I will tell you where my authority comes from. On one condition, he says. John's baptism. Remember how John baptized thousands, helping them renew their commitment to the covenant made between God and Israel in the law of Moses? Looking directly at the accusing elder, he continues. The John who called out Antipas for his wrongdoing and was beheaded in Macarus for it? Yes, that John, he pauses. Was John authorized by heaven or man? Not expecting the question, the first elder begins to speak but thinks better of it. Looking back at the other elders, the man takes a step back and turns to call them over to him. The other elders step down towards him, taking in the attentive faces among the crowd, carefully listening in. Standing next to two of Jesus' disciples, the elders huddle and confer with one another. Whispering so as to not be heard, the crowd watches the elders shake their heads, appearing uncertain as to the response. It's a well-played question, one of the elders remark a little too loudly. The others tell him to lower his voice as they continue to reason. One of the elders deliberates. If we say from heaven, he will shrug and be in the right. He will ask, 
then why didn't you believe John and his message? Furthermore, he will argue that John's role was to prepare the people for the bridegroom, the coming Messiah. The other elders nod at this and agree. Another elder speaks up. We have rejected him as king. Scripture affirms that he is not the rightful Messiah. More nods and yeses. Seating himself back for what appears to be a longer deliberation, Jesus and his disciples exchange looks. Looking around at the crowd, another elder then rejoins the huddle and says, Gentlemen, we need to carefully consider this response. We have a very sensitive situation in front of us right now. This crowd, the simpletons that we peg them for, can easily turn on us if we're not careful. He pauses. The others consider as they look around at the crowd, waiting for their response. The elders continue, If we say from men, this crowd will take us right outside of these walls and stone us to death. Look around you. Just about everyone in this crowd was either baptized by John or knew somebody who was. John was a hero to them before losing his life to Antipas. He died a martyr in their eyes. And his passion to see Israel made right with God was unmistakably clear. Looking at the others, the chief priests among them speaks up. Gentlemen, it seems that we're at an impasse. We will need to consider another plan of attack. Heads nod as the group of elders turn to face the seated teacher. Speaking for the small group, one of the elders says, We do not know. Raising his eyebrows at this response, Jesus slightly nods his head in understanding. Okay, he says, nor will I tell you where my authority comes from. Folks, we're going to stop here for today. What a confrontation, right? As you can tell, things are heating up here in Jerusalem during Passion Week. The tension between the existing leadership and this perceived rebel, false king, and messiah has tightened like a drum. This is one more instance of the divide between those in leadership and the commoners. At this point in time, most commoners were backing this coming king, celebrating his right to the Davidic throne, whereas Israel's leadership was not. By the end of the week, the tides quickly turn, especially when their king and chosen one of God dies a death that Messiah, in the minds of just about everyone, was not supposed to experience. Can you imagine the roller coaster of emotions that must have been present? Can you imagine the confusion among the Jewish commoners? Can you imagine the feelings of vindication by the Jewish leadership? If things here seem turbulent, in less than one week's time, the resurrection takes place and completely changes the outcome of the game. Crazy, right? One thing for sure. Despite the power plays, the ruthless authoritative checkmates, God seems to be orchestrating something far deeper and much more involved than anyone could guess. Nobody saw resurrection as a viable option. Yet God's playbook moves outside of the realm of human mortality, which brings up a bigger question. Who determines authority? Since we see God has a different playbook, it would be safe to assume that God gives authority. How? Well, through the supernatural works of Jesus and the apostles, we see how God favors them. We may logically deduce then, since God favored Jesus and the apostles, shouldn't he favor us? One of the mistakes we can easily make is thinking that God favors us because we've committed our lives to him, that we operate with his authority because we see ourselves on his side. 
Yet, this was the very logic the Sanhedrin elders employed in these very passages. They too thought they were on God's side. Jesus, however, suggested otherwise. In fact, he points out the familiar relationships are no guarantee on being on the same side, let alone children of Abraham. Consider when Jesus is presented with his mothers and brothers. If anyone has the right to access Jesus and have his favor, surely it would be his family, right? In Matthew chapter 12, 46-50, it reads like this. As Jesus was speaking to the crowd, his mothers and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are outside and they want to speak to you. Jesus asked, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he pointed to his disciples and said, look, these are my mothers and brothers. Anyone who does the will of my father is my brother and sister and mother. Ouch! Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. In other words, do you want to be favored by God? Do you want to know if you're on God's side? It comes down to your alignment with Him. If you're resting upon the people you hang out with, your initial faith response, or your legal position as a believer to enjoy God's favor, then you're using the wrong metric. You want God's favor? That will require you to want what God wants. While I've pointed this out a number of times before, I still come back to the words of Jesus again and again. Seek first the kingdom of heaven, want what God wants, and God will take care of your needs. As this relates to the issue of authority, though, here is a word of caution. Authority is the card being played here to dismiss Jesus' validity as Messiah and the rightful king. It would be the trump card used to take his life and justify the actions of Jewish leadership. Now, before we get too upset with the Jewish leaders and seek to stick it to the man, we would do well to identify how the church has used similar authority cards throughout the ages. Just about every denominational leader has played this card over the ages, some worse than others. Look into denominational history over the past 400 years, and you will see those who started new movements were often pressured by the authorities, mostly church leaders who thought they had the favor of God, of their day. Ironically, these new movements would become old movements, and their leaders would seek to quell any new denominational movements from there. Does this mean it's all bad? No, but it does mean that we need to keep this very tendency in check. Human authority systems come with organizational growth, where clear systems are developed. What starts out as a movement often becomes an institution when authoritative structures and processes are put into place and decision-making becomes a top-down norm. Honestly, we don't really know how to do it any other way. Here's the problem, though. Our organization's interests often confuse our growth with a movement of God. So as long as the organization is thriving, we believe we are receiving the blessings of God. Consequently, should anything or anyone disrupt our progress, we consider it, or them, as an enemy of God. We like to think we're on God's side, right? Yet, here we have Jesus, who clearly and supernaturally manifests the power and authority of God, as do the apostles later on in Acts, and the existing structure of the day dismisses Jesus and his followers by circling the wagons for self-preservation purposes. 
We can dive so much deeper into this topic, folks, but I just want to leave you with this one thought. If your justification of playing your authority card is based upon you being right or in the truth, then I want to encourage you to look deeper at your own motives. Is there any desire for self-preservation involved? Insisting upon having your way because you're right always ends up in dictatorial governing. Lording over others is not how Jesus played his hand. Consider this in Matthew 20, 24-28. When the ten other disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world would love to lord it over their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. These words of Jesus should leave us very uneasy. Decisions have to be made, but genuine servant leadership is his solution, for now anyway. Now, there will come a day when he will bring down the authoritative hammer, you know, Lord of Lord, King of Kings and all. While I don't pretend to fully understand how all of this plays out, I can say this. For now, Jesus has called us to a very different form of leadership, a leadership that stems from ongoing pursuits after the kingdom of heaven, wanting what God wants and our daily voluntary surrender to the Spirit of God. This sounds very nebulous. It sounds very non-formulaic, right? But then again, we do have to ask this harder question. How systematic is the Spirit of God? Listen, I understand that there's a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of paths that we didn't necessarily go down. I get it. That's the nature of what it is that we're covering today. But I do want to leave you with this one idea. Will you seek the kingdom of heaven and want what God wants? The Spirit of God promises to show up and direct accordingly. It is very scary to have such non-definition. And I'm not putting down organizations. I'm just saying there's a tendency for us to begin to think that the organization is a substitute for our spiritual well-being. And it's just not the case. Where do I go with all this? Really, it comes down to this. We are here to function dependent upon the Spirit of God, collaboratively with one another, believing that God is going to show up in our midst as we pursue Him. May you pursue Him. Have a great week, folks.